Book Three, Chapter Two of Lady Bridget in the Never Never Land by Rosa Prayed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. They rounded the lagoon and skirted the gidia scrub. Maul was on a munga horse. Bridget rode a fiery little chestnut. Maul had already had opportunity to admire the famous O'Hara seat. They had hunted together once or twice on the Campagna that winter when they had met in Rome. It was difficult to avoid retrospect, but Bridget seemed determined to keep it within conventional limits. They found plenty, however, to talk about in their immediate surroundings. Perhaps it was the effort to throw off the load on her heart that made Bridget gaily confiding. She drew humorous pictures of the comic shifts, the almost tragic hardships of life on the Lura, how she had been left servantless until Ninnis had got up Maggie from the lower Lura when the Chinaman decamped during the gold rush. She described the chivalrous sundowner who had on one occasion helped her through a week's washing, and Zack Duffo, the horse-breaker, whose Christmas pudding had been a culinary triumph, and the loyalty of faithful Wombo, who had done violence to all his savage instincts in acting as house-servant until the advent of the Malay boy Cuppy. She told of her first experience of a summer out west, the frying of eggs in the sun on a sheet of corrugated zinc, so intense was the heat the terror of snakes, centipedes, scorpions, the plagues of flies and white ants. Then, how, during the servantless period, in utter loneliness and Colin's enforced absence at the furthest outstation, she had had an attack of dengue fever, and no woman within forty miles of her. And your husband allowed this? Where was that barmaid-looking person who seems to keep house here for stray gentlemen, and who has the yellow-headed and blue-eyed little boy? Bridget's lip curled. Mrs. Hensor had accepted a temporary situation at an hotel in Fig Tree Mount, the only time I've regretted her absence, and the musical laugh seemed to Maul to have acquired a note of exceeding bitterness. Perhaps you don't know, she went on, that Mrs. Hensor is a sort of Helen of the Upper Lura, though unfortunately as yet no Paris has carried her off. I wish there was one bold enough to do it. She had to be asked to take a change of air because there was rivalry about her between the buyer of a meat-preserving establishment and the chief butcher at Tunumburra. Fair Helen scorned them both. Result, the two buyers bought beasts elsewhere, and, as you would understand, on a cattle station, butchers may not be flouted. Though I dare say, Lady Bridget added with a shrug, if I could have had the butchers in the house, I'd draw the line only at Harris, and had sung to them and played up generally, I might have scored even off Mrs. Hensor, but they wouldn't come until after she had gone and there was no further danger of a duel taking place outside the bachelor's quarters. Maul took her cue again and laughed as if the matter were one to jest about, but as he looked round his face did not suggest merriment, nor for that matter did the landscape. They were riding at the edge of the immense sandy plain, patched with brown jaggled grass and parched brambles and prickly lignum vitae, nothing to break the barren monotony but clumps of stunted brigolo and gidea a windmill marking the site of an empty well with a few hungry-looking cattle near it. Now they dipped into the scrub of dismal Gadir. "'This is the most depressing country I have ever ridden through,' he said. "'You don't know what a difference three inches of rain makes,' she answered. "'Then the grass is green, the creeks are running, and at this time the dead brambles are covered with white flowers. But it doesn't rain. There's the tragedy.' "'The tragedy is that you—' you of all women should be wasting your youth and beauty in this wilderness how long is it going to last she shrugged again and for an instant turned her face up towards the sky you must ask the heavens 
Meaning, I presume, that like most of the Australian squatters, your husband hasn't capital enough at his back to stand up against continued drought. Precisely. She looked at him with her puzzling smile. But you couldn't have understood his position when you married him? No, I didn't, altogether. But I should really like to remind you that I am not in the witness-box. I think you owe me the truth, he said passionately. What do you call the truth? she asked, reining in her horse and meeting his eyes straight. But she had to turn hers away before he answered, and he as well as herself was conscious of the compelling effect his gaze had upon her. I could have made you married me if I had been strong enough to persist, he said. Cannot any man do what he is strong enough to do, if he wishes it enough to persist? I should have put it this way. If I had thought less of you and more of myself, but after what you said that day, when you jeered so contemptuously at the kind of environment in which, then, I should have had to place my wife, what could I do except withdraw? But you suffered, Bridget, he went on vehemently. Not so much as I did, but still you suffered. You thought of me, I felt it, and you must have felt too, how continually I thought of you. I used to try and make you think of me, dream of me, and I succeeded. Isn't that true? Yes, it is true, she answered in a low voice. Only lately, since I have been in the district, it has seemed to me that the invisible wires have been set working afresh. Isn't that true also? Yes, it is true, she said again, as if forced to the acknowledgement. Then, can there be any question of the bond between us? You see, it's independent of time and space, for you were sorry, you did care. That's the truth you owe me. If, after, after we parted in that dreadful way, I had gone back, had thrown up everything, had said to you, come with me anywhere, let us be all in all to each other, on the slopes of the Andes, on an island in the South Seas, you would have come? I always told you, she said with her puzzling smile, that the slopes of the Andes appealed to me. Peru would have been more picturesque than this, anyway. Is that all I can get out of you, that grudging admission? Well, never mind, I am satisfied. You have owned up to enough. I won't tease you now for more admissions. I have admitted too much, she said gloomily. The curse of the O'Haras is upon me. Almost all of them have gambled with their lives, and most of them have lost. She gave her horse the rein as she spoke, and they cantered on over the plain. After that, she resolutely forbade sentiment. Mr. Ninnis was gratified by an invitation that evening to dine at the home, and came down in his best dark suit and his most genial mood. Bridget sang. She had not been singing much lately. Colin's gloom over the evil prospects of squatting on the lure reacted upon her spirits. And besides, the piano had been attacked by white ants, and the tuner had not been so far up the river for a long time. It was inspiring to learn that Maule added to his gifts that of getting a piano into tune. Ninnis promised to rummage among the tools for a key that would serve. Ninnis had never admired Lady Bridget so much as he did this evening. Certainly he thought her more flighty and incomprehensible than ever, but he could not deny her fascination. It seemed quite natural to him that she should be in high spirits at seeing an old friend from England, who appeared to know all her people. Ninnis had taken immensely to Maul. Besides, Maul knew parts of the world where Ninnis had been. It was curious to see the Americanisms crop out. Ninnis considered Maul a person of parts and of practical experience. He said to himself that the boss had done wisely in leaving Maul at the head station while they were short-handed. Maul showed great interest in bush matters, said he wanted to learn all he could about the management of cattle, 
thought it not improbable that he might invest money in Leichardt's land. Ninnis agreed to show him round, and Maul begged that he might be made useful, even offered to take a turn with the tailing mob, so that Mungar Bill and the other stockmen might be free to muster more cattle. Nothing was heard of the blacks during the next day or two, but one morning Ninnis discovered that an old gun, which the station hands and black boys were allowed to use on Sundays for shooting game in the lagoon, had disappeared in the night. Circumstantial evidence pointed to Wombo as the thief. Kaji owned to having seen him skulking among the gully rocks. A deserted gunya was found near a lonely, half-dry waterhole in the scrub, and there were rumours of a tribe of wild blacks having passed towards the outlying country in the Breezer Downs direction. No news came, however, of either racial or labour warfare. McKeith sent not a word of his doings, and Harry the Blower was not due yet on his postal fortnightly round. McKeith had been gone a week, and the time of his absence seemed like that sinister lull which comes after the sudden shock of an earthquake and the tornado that follows upon it. Then, one day, something happened. All the men except the Chinamen were out, Mungar Bill, Ninnis, and the stockman on the run, while Maul, a book and a sandwich in his pocket, had gone herding with Joey Case and one of the extra hands. A sense of mutual embarrassment had that day driven them apart. He had been afraid of himself, and she too had felt afraid. During these seven days she had rushed recklessly on as though impelled by a fatality, never pausing to consider how near she might be to a precipice. Whenever possible she had ridden out with Maul and Ninnis, or with Maul alone. She found relief from painful thoughts of Colin in the excitement and emotion with which Maul's society provided her. She went with him on several occasions behind the tailing mob, though ordinarily she could not endure being at close quarters with cattle. But it interested her to see Maul ride after and round up the wild ones that escaped, to watch his splendid horsemanship, which had the flamboyant South American touch, the suggestion of lariat and lasso and ornate equipment, the picturesque element lacking in the bush all harmonising with his deep dark eyes and southern type of good looks. Today she had preferred to remain at home alone. She had been pulled up with a startled sense of shock. Last evening, when they were walking together on the veranda, he had begun again to make love to her, and in still more passionate earnest, had held her hands, had tried to kiss her. She had found herself giving way to the old romantic intoxication, then had wrenched herself from him only just before the meeting of lips. At last she had realised the strength of the glamour. She fought against it. Nevertheless, in imagination, gave herself up to it, as the opium-smoker or hashish-eater gives himself up to the insidious fantasia of his drug. Yes, Bridget thought, it was like what she had read of the effects of some unholy drug, some uncanny form of hypnotism. For she knew that she did not really love more, that her feeling for him was unwholesome. There was poison in it acting upon her affection for and trust in her husband. Maul made subtle insinuations to McKeith's detriment, injected doubts that rankled. There were no definite charges, though he would hint sometimes at gossip he had heard in Tunumburra, but he would convey to her, in half-words, looks and tones, that he had reason to believe Colin unworthy of her, that her husband had led the life of an ordinary bushman, and had fully availed himself of such material pleasures as might have come to his hand. The veiled questions he asked about Mrs. Hensor and her boy brought back a startled remembrance of the scene outside the Fig Tree Mount Hotel and Steadbolt's vague accusation. She had almost forgotten it, had never seriously thought about it, yet now she knew the midge bite had festered. 
Could it be that there was a chapter in Colin's life of which she knew nothing? Was it not too much to believe that he had always been faithful to his ideal of the campfire? Ah, Moore would have jeered at that, would have been totally incapable of understanding the romance of that dream drive, a dream in truth. But how beautiful, how sane, how uplifting it seemed compared with the feverish hashish dream in which she was now living. Restless under the obsession, she wandered up the gully, and, as she sat among the rocks, wrestled with her black angel and conquered. Clearly there was but one thing to do. She must send Maul away at once before Colin came back. As for Colin, the trouble must be faced separately. Maul must ride back to Tunumburra. He knew the track. Or, should he wish to explore the district further, Harry the Blower was due with the mail tomorrow, and could guide him to any station on the postman's route which might appear to Maul desirable. Bridget knew that Moore would leave the tailing mob before the other men that afternoon, and would probably come to look for her here. So having arrived at her decision, and wishing to put off the inevitable scene as long as possible, she set forth by another route for the head station. End of Book 3 Chapter 2